Chapter Thirteen of Erewhon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ernst Patinama. Erewhon, Chapter Thirteen: The Views of the Erewhonians Concerning Death. The Erichonians regard death with less abhorrence than disease. If it is an offence at all, it is one beyond the reach of the law, which is therefore silent on the subject. But they insist that a greater number of those who are commonly said to die have never yet been born, not at least into that unseen world which is alone worthy of consideration. As regards this unseen world, I understand them to say that some miscarry in respect to it before they have even reached the scene, and some after, while few are ever truly born into it at all. The great part of all the men and women over the whole country miscarrying before they reach it, and they say that this does not matter so much as we think it does. As for what we call death, they argue that too much has been made of it. The mere knowledge that we shall one day die does not make us very unhappy. No one thinks that he or she will escape, so that none are disappointed. We do not care greatly, even though we know that we have not long to live. The only thing that would seriously affect us would be the knowing, or rather thinking that we know, the precise moment at which the blow will fall. Happily, no one can ever certainly know this, though many try to make themselves miserable by endeavouring to find it out. It seems as though there were some power somewhere, which mercifully stays us from putting that sting into the tail of death, which we would put there if we could, and which ensures that, though death must always be a bugbear, it shall never under any conceivable circumstances, be more than a bugbear. For even though a man is condemned to die in a week's time, and is shut up in a prison from which it is certain that he cannot escape, he will always hope that a reprieve may come before the week is over. Besides, the prison may catch fire, and he may be suffocated not with a rope, but with common ordinary smoke or he may be struck dead by lightning while exercising in the prison yards. When the morning is come on which the poor wretch is to be hanged, he may choke at his breakfast, or die from failure of the heart's action before the drop has fallen. And even though it has fallen, he cannot be quite certain that he is going to die, for he cannot know this till his death has actually taken place, and it will be too late then for him to discover that he was going to die at the appointed hour after all. The Erichonians, therefore, hold that death, like life, is an affair of being more frightened than hurt. They burn their dead, and the ashes are presently scattered over any piece of ground which the deceased may himself have chosen. No one is permitted to refuse this hospitality to the dead. People, therefore, generally choose some garden or orchard which they may have known and been fond of when they were young. The superstitious hold that those whose ashes are scattered over any land 
become its jealous guardians from that time forward, and the living like to think that they shall become identified with this or that locality where they have once been happy. They do not put up monuments, nor write epitaphs for their dead, though in former ages their practice was much as ours, but they have a custom which comes to much the same thing, for the instinct of preserving the name alive after the death of the body seems to be common to all mankind. They have statues of themselves made while they are still alive, those that is who can afford it, and write inscriptions under them which are often quite as untruthful as are our own epitaphs, only in another way. For they do not hesitate to describe themselves as victims to ill-temper, jealousy, covetousness, and the like, but almost always lay claim to personal beauty, whether they have it or not, and often to the possession of a large sum in the funded debt of the country. If a person is ugly, he does not sit as a model for his own statue, although it bears his name. He gets the handsomest of his friends to sit for him, and one of the ways of paying a compliment to another is to ask him to sit for such a statue. Women generally sit for their own statues, from a natural disinclination to admit the superior beauty of a friend, but they expect to be idealized. I understood that the multitude of these statues was beginning to be felt as an encumbrance in almost every family, and that the custom would probably before long fall into desuetude. Indeed, this has already come about to the satisfaction of everyone, as regards the statues of public men, not more than three of which can be found in the whole capital. I expressed my surprise at this, and was told that some five hundred years before my visit, the city had been so overrun with these pests that there was no getting about, and people were worried beyond endurance by having their attention called at every touch and turn to something which, when they had attended to it, they found not to concern them. Most of these statues were mere attempts to do for some man or woman what an animal stuffer does more successfully for a dog or bird or pike. They were generally foisted on the public by some coterie that was trying to exalt itself in exalting someone else, and not unfrequently they had no other inception than desire on the part of some member of the coterie to find a job for a young sculptor to whom his daughter was engaged. Statues so begotten could never be anything but deformities, and this is the way in which they are sure to be begotten as soon as the art of making them at all has become widely practised. I know not why, but all the noblest arts hold in perfection but for a very little moment. They soon reach a height from which they begin to decline, and when they have begun to decline, it is a pity that they cannot be knocked on the head, for an art is like a living organism, better dead than dying. There is no way of making an aged art young again, must be born anew and grow up from infancy as a new thing, working out its own salvation from effort to effort in all fear and trembling. The Erihonians, five hundred years ago, understood nothing of all this. 
I doubt whether they even do so now. They wanted to get the nearest thing they could to a stuffed man whose stuffing should not grow mouldy. They should have had some such an establishment as our Madame Tussauds, where the figures wear real clothes and are painted up to nature. Such an institution might have been made self-supporting, for people might have been made to pay before going in. As it was, they had let the poor, cold, grimy, colourless heroes and heroines loaf about in squares and in corners of streets in all weathers, without any attempt at artistic sanitation, for there was no provision for burying their dead works of art out of their sight, no drainage, so to speak, whereby statues that had been sufficiently assimilated, so as to form part of the residuary impression of the country, might be carried away out of the system. Hence they put them up with a light heart on the cackling of the coteries, and they and their children had to live, often enough, with some wordy windbag whose cowardice had cost the country untold loss in blood and money. At last the evil reached such a pitch that the people rose, and with indiscriminate fury destroyed good and bad alike. Most of what was destroyed was bad, but some few works were good, and the sculptors of today wring their hands over some of the fragments that have been preserved in museums up and down the country. For a couple of hundred years or so, not a statue was made from one end of the kingdom to the other, but the instinct for having stuffed men and women was so strong that people at length again began to try to make them, not knowing how to make them, and having no academics to mislead them, the earliest sculptors of this period thought things out for themselves, and again produced works that were full of interest, so that in three or four generations they reached a perfection, hardly, if at all, inferior to that of several hundred years earlier. On this, the same evils recurred. Sculptors obtained high prices. The art became a trade. Schools arose which professed to sell the holy spirit of art for money. Pupils flocked from far and near to buy it, in the hopes of selling it later on, and was struck purblind as a punishment for the sin of those who sent them. Before long, a second iconoclastic fury would infallibly have followed, but for the pressions of a statesman who succeeded in passing an act to the effect that no statue of any public man or woman should be allowed to remain unbroken for more than fifty years, unless at the end of that time a jury of twenty-four men, taken at random from the street, pronounced in favour of its being allowed a second fifty years of life. Every fifty years this reconsideration was to be repeated, and unless there was a majority of eighteen in favour of the retention of the statue, it was to be destroyed. Perhaps a simpler plan would have been to forbid the erection of a statue to any public man or woman till he or she had been dead at least one hundred years, and even then to insist on reconsideration of the claims of the deceased and the merit of the statue every fifty years. But the working of the act brought about results that on the whole were satisfactory, for in the first place Many public statues that would have been voted under the old system were not ordered, 
when it was known that they would be almost certainly broken up after fifty years, and in the second, public sculptors, knowing the work to be so ephemeral, scammed it to an extent that made it offensive even to the most uncultured eye. Hence, before long, subscribers took to paying the sculptor for the statue of the dead statesman on condition that he did not make it. The tribute of respect was thus paid to the deceased, the public sculptors were not mocked, and the rest of the public suffered no inconvenience. I was told, however, that an abuse of this custom is growing up, inasmuch as the competition for the commission not to make a statue is so keen that sculptors have been known to return a considerable part of the purchase money to the subscribers by an arrangement made with them beforehand. Such transactions, however, are always clandestine. A small inscription is let into the pavement where the public statue would have stood, which informs the reader that such a statue has been ordered for the person, whoever he or she may be, but that as yet the sculptor has not been able to complete it. There has been no act to repress statues that are intended for private consumption, but as I have said, the custom is following into desuetude. Returning to Erihonian customs in connection with death, there is one which I can hardly pass over. When anyone dies, the friends of the family write no letters of condolence, neither do they attend the scattering, nor wear mourning, but they send little boxes filled with artificial tears, and with the name of the sender painted neatly upon the outside of the lid. The tears vary in number from two to fifteen or sixteen, according to degree of intimacy or relationship, and people sometimes find it a nice point of etiquette to know the exact number which they ought to send. Strange as it may appear, this attention is highly valued, and its submission by those from whom it might be expected is keenly felt. These tears were formerly stuck with adhesive plaster to the cheeks of the bereaved, and were worn in public for a few months after the death of a relative. They were then banished to the hat or bonnet, and are now no longer worn. The birth of a child is looked upon as a painful subject, on which it is kinder not to touch. The illness of the mother is carefully concealed, until the necessity for signing the birth formula, of which hereafter, renders further secrecy impossible, and for some months before the event, the family live in retirement, seeing very little company. When the offence is over and done with, it is condoned by the common want of logic, for this merciful provision of nature, this buffer against collisions, this friction which upsets our calculations, but without which existence would be intolerable, this crowning glory of human invention, whereby we can be blind and see at one and the same moment, this blessed inconsistency exists here as elsewhere. And though the strictest writers on morality have maintained that it is wicked for a woman to have children at all, inasmuch as it is wrong to be out of health that good may come, Yet the necessity of the case has caused a general feeling in favour of passing over such events in silence, and of assuming their non-existence, except in such flagrant cases 
has forced themselves on the public notice. Against these, the condemnation of society is inexorable, and if it is believed that the illness has been dangerous and protracted, it is almost impossible for a woman to recover her former position in society. The above conventions struck me as arbitrary and cruel, but they put a stop to many fancied ailments, for the situation, so far from being considered interesting, is looked upon as savouring more or less distinctly of a very reprehensible condition of things, and the ladies take care to conceal it as long as they can, even from their own husbands, in anticipation of a severe scolding as soon as the misdemeanour is discovered. Also, the baby is kept out of sight, except on the day of signing the birth formula, until it can walk and talk. Should the child unhappily die, a coroner's inquest is inevitable, but in order to avoid disgracing a family, which may have been hitherto respected, it is almost invariably found that the child was over seventy-five years old and died from the decay of nature. End of chapter 13 Recording by Ernst Patinama Amsterdam, the Netherlands